The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Amplifying the ADC Advantage, How to Fulfill the Potential of Antibody Drug Conjugates as the Next Frontier in Precision Lung Cancer Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash YEN 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight at ASCO 2023. My name is Stephen Liu. I'm a medical oncologist from Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Uh, you are here for Amplifying the ADC Advantage, How to Fulfill the Potential of Antibody Drug Conjugates as the Next Frontier in Precision Lung Cancer Care. Antibody Drug Conjugates are a very important novel class of cancer therapeutics, and their time in non-small cell lung cancer is starting today. We are right at the precipice, and to discuss their impact in the field of lung cancer, I have the distinct privilege of having a globally recognized and accomplished panel of thoracic oncology leaders, and Ben Levy, we've got something for everybody. <laughs> uh, to my immediate right, Professor Solange Peters from Lausanne, Switzerland. Uh, followed by Dr. Melissa Johnson from Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville, Tennessee, and Dr. Ben Levy from Johns Hopkins University. We are going to go over antibody drug conjugates and their role in non-small cell lung cancer, what you need to know today, and what you're going to need to know in the future. Our goal is today to improve the knowledge, the composition mechanism, rationale, and potential for ADCs to improve awareness of important trials you need to keep in mind when considering these agents and improve the skills of integrating these ADCs into your practice. I want to take a second to talk about longevity for our partner. You saw the video before our session here. Lung cancer is complex. Patient engagement is more important than ever. It's important that longevity uh, is there as a resource to educate our patients. The patients then become better informed and partner with us in their care to improve further outcomes. I want you to take a look at this link here at the bottom, longevity.org slash order dash materials for educational materials. We have these in our clinic available for our patients. And so please take a look at these resources that are available to us uh, as caregivers. Longevity and peer review. Took a look around to see what was the current state of knowledge about antibody drug conjugates. And I think these are pretty telling. If we look at the left here, uh, when we ask patients about ADCs, what we realize is it's still pretty much a big black box. Patients do not know what antibody drug conjugates are. 36% had never heard of them. Another 46% were somewhat familiar, but this is clearly a new novel area and people aren't sure what they are. Patients want to know what are ADCs, how do we use them, in whom are they going to work, and what types of therapies they are. When we think of treatment for lung cancer, we think of immunotherapy, we think of targeted therapy, we think of chemotherapy. What are antibody drug conjugates Solange, how would you classify ADCs? Do they fit nicely into one of those buckets? I don't think so. It's really a new class of drug. If you really want to compare it to chemotherapy, it's more targeted, so it's precision oncology targeted therapy. However, it's still chemotherapy. So it's probably sitting in between what we call targeted therapies and the chemotherapy, so it's a new arena, a new field of research and development. Melissa, how do you describe this when someone asks, what is an ADC? To my patients, I call it a smart bomb that uh, uh, targets the cancer, and when it finds the cancer, it injects the chemotherapy into the cancer cells and leaves the rest of the cells alone. Ben, any thoughts on how you would describe this class of drugs? 
Yeah, I, I think this is, I, I'm going to steal something that Melissa Johnson always says, which is chemotherapy 2.0. <laughs> and uh, it's, you know, we want to think of it as a javelin missile, as Melissa described, and, and really target the, the specifically the, the cancer cell that can then release the payload. But we know that it's much more complex than that. When we look at our clinicians that we asked, honestly, where are we in terms of our knowledge for ADCs? About a third said they demonstrated good understanding. About a third had confidence in using it. It's a small number. 40% had adequate skills. And yet, despite those low numbers of comfort, of understanding, the majority, 60%, would recommend ADCs. I think that, that disconnect there shows the enthusiasm for something new. While immunotherapy and target therapy have a clear place, there's a lot of room for improvement, and we are ready for something to fill that gap. There's a big unmet need clinically, and this is showing us there's a big unmet need in terms of knowledge as well. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the potential of ADCs as the next frontier for lung cancer care. Now, everyone in this room is familiar with the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer and the fact that it, it resembles cancer care uh, a couple years ago in almost no regard. We know that lung cancer is many diseases that are related. We know that if we do next-gen sequencing, we can identify these molecular markers, these drivers, these mutations, these fusions, and each slice of this pie represents a different biology, in effect represents a different cancer, and more and more we're able to treat those cancers separately with their own individual algorithms. If we see an actionable target, we're going to deliver targeted therapy up front. If we don't, we're going to find some way to incorporate immunotherapy. And despite the potential for robust responses, resistance is still our biggest problem in the clinic. Intrinsic resistance up front or acquired resistance. If we think of immunotherapy, long-term benefit, maybe even cure for some patients, but not most. And so, Solange, if we give immunotherapy and we don't get that long-term benefit, what's next? Well... That's the main question we have now, and it's very interesting in the survey when you ask people if they are ready to deliver antibody drug conjugates, or if they think it's prime time, it's the time to get to know these compounds and deliver them, it's probably because of this unmet need. If you think about delivering immunotherapy and resistance to immunotherapy, some mechanisms have been described. Again, most of the data we have come from other diseases. It comes from our melanoma colleagues, from many of them. But you can see the categories of mechanism of resistance to immunotherapy checkpoints that have been described today. And you can imagine how we are enthusiastic in trying to uh, direct new drugs and strategies against these categories of mechanism of resistance. Enhanced tumor immunogenicity might be one way. Vaccines, giving with chemo, giving with radiation, this immunogenic cell death, it would be one, of uh, one way to try to fight against these defects in antigen presentation. Then the immunosuppressive tumor microenvironment. So you could imagine to modulate cytokines, sometimes to try to transform the macrophage phenotype M2 to M1 to eliminate T-Rex. So all of this would be strategies. And the third one, to enhance T-cell is T-cell therapy. It can even be some, uh, I would say, VGF to help the T-cell to enter the tumor. Or it can be also some kind of cytokines or T-cell engineering in the future. Of course, competing T also checkpoints. All of this could be tested. However, what is the rate of success? Mm. Uh, so it's theoretically absolutely uh, wonderful. So that's what we have in second line today. So you are with your patient, he progresses under immunotherapy, so this recognized second line, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, durvalumab, are out of the game because we already gave them. In the old days, we were giving afatinib, we were giving afatinib, we were giving alotinib, nobody does it anymore because we know that they don't have the target. So we have docetaxel, 
plus maybe something, but we have docetaxel. So that's why it's very theoretical. There's a new wave of um, very fashion, the idea of potentially using tiki eyes, which would target on one hand the microenvironment, the macrophage component, probably, as well as the presentation of antigen plus the uh, anti-angiogenic component for the trafficking uh, of the T cells. We have been seeing cabozantinib, citravatinib, lenvatinib are all drugs which might be good drugs. Uh, you can see them in the category here, the, the last one. Unfortunately, we got to know that cabozantinib with immunotherapy doesn't work, citravatinib with immunotherapy doesn't work, and we hope lenvatinib will do better. So if you look at all this scheme of what you can do, you can do taxotir, docetaxel, you can do docetaxel plus antiangiogenic, that's true. You can identify your, uh, I would say, oncogene addiction if you have not done before, but you should theoretically do it before. You can try this antiangiogenic, but it looks like failing. So what remains? ADCs. So that's why I think we all would like to know more and be able to, to use ADC. And this is, a, if you have missed it, the last press release, which was really a disappointment of Sapphire, this trial with citravatinib and nivolumab, just to tell that more than ever, the unmet need is being felt by the community in terms of failure rates of our trials. I agree. This was, this was disappointing. And you know, immunotherapy, we've been familiar with it for a while now. Um, we want a newer immunotherapy agent. We want these newer combinations. But I think the bottom line here is we aren't there yet. And after we give chemoimmunotherapy, if there's no driver, it's a pretty steep drop. And 2023, we're still talking about delivering docetaxel plus ramucirumab maybe uh, as, as our best standard of care. We've got to be able to do better. Now, if we turn to the other half, the other major pillar of targeted therapy, we're delivering these TKIs. They give robust responses. They work quickly. Responses are common. They're deep. Um, these are powerful medicines, but they don't work forever. And eventually we do see resistance. And once we exhaust our TKIs, Melissa, what does that look like? What do we do post-TKI? Stephen, this is probably, OC Martinib is our frontline EGFR uh, targeted therapy, of course, and it is arguably one of the best drugs that we can use in lung cancer. Um, and likewise, when it stops working, that is another huge unmet need uh, where we, uh, doctors call all the time wondering what to do. So, you know, it is a complicated place. And so right now we try to understand the mechanisms of resistance uh, for, for what it's worth. So rebiopsy is always a good idea in your post ocimertinib patient. Whether uh, you, have, you have a patient that's willing to undergo a biopsy, sometimes that's a stretch when they've just progressed on this therapy that worked so well. Liquid biopsy is a great option. We're looking for MET amplification. We're looking for EGFR C797S, which is the most common resistance mutation to ocimertinib, and we have options in trial for, uh, for those patients. Um, we're, we also look for fusions. We look for small cell transformation that you can see even on a liquid biopsy report as uh, RB and P53 transformation. And so you're thinking about that in patients that have very uh, virulent progression in an otherwise slow-growing EGFR positive patient. We're looking for oligoprogressors. What do I mean by that? Uh, patients that only have one spot uh, or three spots of progression that might be treated with radiation so you can keep the ocimertinib going. We know the results of the SINDUS trial reported within the last year that show that when we use TKI plus radiation, we can prolong not just PFS, but overall survival. So that is one way to, to uh, squeeze a little bit more benefit out of our ocimertinib. 
you know, the, um, the truth is, uh, what, what do we do? We use Ocimertin longer than we should because we follow these patients beyond progression. We follow them a little longer. Are they really having symptoms? Is that really a new spot? Um, but, but we know that we can do this. There is data to tell us that we can treat beyond progression, including the aspiration trial shown on the left-hand side of this, tri of, of this uh, slide. But uh, eventually, uh, if you don't have access to a clinical trial, what do you do? Well, we give standard of care carboplatin and pemetrexid to these patients. And I guess the one question that comes up still is whether to add OC or to continue the osimertinib to keep it going as you start the chemotherapy. I'm often tempted to think about this because of the penetration of osimertinib into the brain. And if the patient's uh, CNS has been controlled, I worry that maybe that will be the sanctuary site where the brain metastasis uh, begin to uh, progress on the chemo alone. It is interesting though, the results of the IMPRESS trial shown in the bottom right, uh, in that trial, patients were treated with EGFR, TKI, gefitinib, and chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone. And look, you can see the placebo arm did a little better to suggest that as a general strategy, continuing EGFR plus chemotherapy uh, may not be best for everybody. But in those patients in whom you're worried about CNS metastasis, I continue the osimertinib. Of course, the other thing that we think about doing these days is, well, do we drop the osimertinib and, and add on the, pema, uh, the pembrolizumab? If this really is standard of care, shouldn't we be adding immunotherapy? All your other patients with non-small cell lung cancer get immunotherapy. But we have a press release from uh, the Keynote 789 trial that announced that uh, uh, this trial that will be reported uh, later at this meeting by Dr. Professor James Yang, that when you add pembrolizumab to chemotherapy, the results are negative. There's no improvement in benefit. We'll need to see the results to understand why. Is that because patients really should be on a TKI and the overlapping toxicity with immunotherapy is still a problem. We don't, we don't know. Um, but I think it has changed my practice because I have been tempted uh, to just add the uh, pembrolizumab to the chemo um, because why not? Um, so we'll, I'm, I'm uh, eager to see the results of Keynote 789. But I think that really speaks to the lack of really good options once we exhaust TKI. Yes, mm -hmm. it is a wide open space. Yeah, and you know, I think that when Flora first ran out, 18 months, we were thrilled. We were jumping up and down. Now, when we see a new diagnosis with EGFR immune lung cancer, to say 18 months on average, I think we recognize that is not a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And for patients, like 18 months never was great, yeah. right? Like if you tell patients 18 months, so we have more work to do. So we need better options after chemoimmunotherapy, better options after TKI then. Antibody drug conjugates, are they the answer? And if they could be, in which pillar is this going to stand up? Is it going to be in the immunotherapy world or in the targeted therapy world? Yeah, I think it may be in both. I think the jury is still out here. What we've learned about these antibody drug conjugates is that we've had some nice data showing that they, they are, can elicit meaningful responses in those patients with driver mutations. Mm -hmm. uh, and there may be a lot of biological reasons why that is. So I do foresee a scenario where ADCs will fit into the treatment continuum of a patient with a driver mutation. Now, will this be second line? Will this be third line? Or dare I say, will this be in combination with TKI up front? Um, but I, do, I, 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 will, 
I think we will have a role for ADCs uh, for those patients that are driver mutation positive. Um, the question about post-chemo IO, I think this is where, as we have mentioned, there's just such a, this is an unmet need. We've got docetaxel that's just hanging on as a second-line drug uh, and has done really well in clinical trials recently. Um, we will have a head-to-head -head comparison reading out soon, a phase three trial of an ADC, um, uh, a trope two ADC compared to docetaxel uh, in the second line for, for all comers, unenriched uh, for biomarker. And so I hope that we'll see a, a, a therapeutic switch and parad a therapeutic a paradigm uh, shift here where we can leverage these drugs in second line post chemo IO. Yeah, so lots of potential places for ADCs. We need to know what these are and we need to be able to talk about these intelligently with our patients to understand the differences between them. And so for this program, let's talk about what antibody drug conjugates are. Let's get a little more familiar with them. We've got a couple main components of the ADCs, I'm asking my colleagues here to walk us through a little bit. Let's start with the, the antibody, right at the, right at the jump, and the antigen. Solange, do you wanna walk us through sort of what we're looking at here? Thanks so much. So the antibody part is really in line with what you know from the antibody we have been using as a kind of naked components of cancer care. But here in this antibody are carrying something, the payload, but just thinking about the antibody and, and the colleagues will take the other parts of the ADCs. But the antibody has, of course, to have a high affinity for a specific target. The highest the affinity, the best. Most of these antibodies are IgG1. So most of the antibodies are able to elicit also a reaction an uh, antibody-directed cell cytotoxicity and activation of the complement. So they really bind and act as an antibody. So the binding has to have a very strong affinity, but of course, for the target, the target has to be, if possible, exclusive uh, to the cancer cell, meaning uh, reserved and restricted to an expression on the cancer cell, and if possible, not on healthy tissue. Otherwise, you will have an effect against healthy tissue. So strong affinity, and I would say uh, an antigen which has uh, a presence on the cancer cell only, if possible, or the majority of the presence on the cancer cell, an overexpression. If possible, it should be an expression which is homogeneous, seen on each cancer cell, which is never the case, but the more homogeneous, the best. And what is very important and might explain some of the question marks we have. You can maybe not always measure this uh, antibody on the cell surface because there is a turn, turnover of, of molecules on the surface versus the cytoplasm. And it's this turnover, this internalization might be an important component. So it might be betrayed by trying to measure because what is important is that this antibody will be internalized to kill the cancer cells. The antibody itself, so long half-life, IgG1 have long half-life, remember 20 days or something like that? The conjugation site, when you put on the bottom of the antibody uh, uh, drug, it has to be uh, something stable with uh, maintaining the half-life and the pharmacokinetic of the drug. And of course, we like to have humanized antibody now to avoid all the infusion reaction we have seen in the past, so a humanized antibody. So that the antibody, this antigen, it has to be specific and if possible, specific to cancer tissue only. Let's talk, just to, to clarify here, um, when you talk about the antigen, you mentioned that perfect antigen would be homogeneously expressed on every cancer cell, yeah. but not anywhere else. Can you explain to the group why that's important? Why 
Does it matter if it's expressed in other places? Yeah, because uh, the, the risk is, uh, provided that this antibody binds to a cell is, easy, is internalized, meaning that there is a turnover uh, of this uh, antigen between the cytoplasm and the surface. Imagine a healthy cell expressing this uh, antigen. It will bind the antibody and this normal cell, which can be dividing, which may, can be an important cell for an organ function, will also be destroyed. And even some things that will be discussed later on, sometimes it's not only the cell, but cells around which can also be affected by that. So the idea is to try to, and that's what Melissa was telling, or, or 2.0, it's a chemo 2.0, because here you hope that you avoid the usual side effects of chemo, meaning the toxicity on normal cells, because they shouldn't express the, uh, the antigen. So that's why it's 2.0, is without the damage to normal cells, ideally. Yeah, this smart chemotherapy delivering a cytotoxic effect, but really just to cells that are expressing it. So the selection of antigens is important. I know the three of you are really involved in drug development, and I think this is an important point. When you're looking at the antibody, there are all these metrics, all these features of the antibody that you're looking at that are really going to determine where can we best use this drug. And I think, Solange, as, as you know, there are a lot of these out there, right? Yeah. So the list, we will cover many of these tonight, right? But the list of these potential antigens, right? It's on the left. These are these uh, molecules on the surface, of course, of the cell, which are sufficiently differentially expressed on tumor cells as compared to normal tissue and might represent good targets. So, of course, then the, all the details of uh, the ADC, meaning not only the target, but what drug is the payload is bound, uh, what is the linker, how many any molecules you have, what is the dose to, to be used is specific to each of the drug. But look at the list of targets. So the family of herb molecules, HER2, uh, HER3, the TROP2, we'll discuss it a lot, CKM5, CMAT. You can see this list, it's non-small cell, it's also small cell now. So really a growing list of potential targets. And we've been knowing this molecule since a while because many of these have been shown already to potentially play a prognostic role in the tumor biology. So we knew they were specifically expressed on cancer cells. We don't really always know the mechanism, but we can identify these molecules which characterize cancer cells and they become good targets. Mm -hmm. So a lot of work in discovery going on here. We're looking for something that's not expressed on a normal cell to really limit the toxicity until we get maybe newer technology that allows us to sort of uh, specifically target ones on cancer cells. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. So we've talked about the antigen. The antigen's not really part of the molecule though. So in the molecule we have the antibody and on the business side, we have the drug, the <laughs> payload. Melissa, you wanna walk us through that? Sure, the business side down there at the bottom, you see the, uh, the turquoise uh, payloads. That's the cytotoxic chemotherapy that uh, will be injected into the cell or actually engulfed into the cell and taken up by the lysosomes um, into the cancer cell. You know, the, uh, typically the uh, chemotherapy, the payloads that we're using are way, way, way more potent than the chemotherapy that we would inject into a patient's bloodstream. Um, but they are derivatives of those of those chemotherapies that we're used to giving. So some of the side effects that we talk about that are related happen because the payload wanders off uh, into the bloodstream and does what we know chemotherapy can do. Um, the, an ideal payload um, also is uh, connected to the antibody via a linker. And most of these drugs have a proprietary linker that, that it's an important part um, of how the 
drug uh, holds on to the payload until it delivers it to the cancer cell. And uh, when, when the drug is, has a, a leaky linker, that's how we lose the payload. Um, the other important thing about the payload is that we can uh, dial up or dial down the number of payload molecules that are on each antibody or connected to each antibody. And we refer to that as the DAR, drug to antibody ratio. So at the top of the screen, you can see TDM1, uh, with, uh, uh, with one emtansine uh, molecule here. The DAR uh, is three in the cartoon. And so you can see that there are three payloads connected to every antibody. By contrast, terastuzumab durextecan at the bottom, you see its DAR is eight, and you see that there are many more payload molecules stacked onto the cell. Now, I, you would think that the drugs with higher DAR are the more potent ones, the, the ones with more side effects. But as we go, pay attention to the DAR because you'll see that that's not true. So then that means that there's something about the payload um, itself that is toxic as opposed to the number of payloads. Is it fascinating? And yeah, I hope this helps you understand how complex um, and how uh, iterative uh, the building of an antibody drug conjugate could be. Yeah, it's, it's medicinal chemistry, and you know, we really it's are cool. living in the future. Right? So all these details impact the binding properties. The, you yeah. have to make sure there's not steric hindrance. So there's a lot of work that goes into all of these molecules. And I think one important point is that they are not interchangeable. Uh, ben, we heard a little bit about linkers and how we don't want them to be leaky. Can we talk a little bit more about the linker portion of this? Yeah, so if the payload is the business side of the ADC, the linker is sort of the mailroom. It's sort of the underrepresented glue of a business operation. So uh, linkers are really important. You know, you want the sweet spot with a linker. The, a linker, really, you'd, you want to be able to uh, bind warhead and keep it uh, attached to the monoclonal antibody and the plasma. You don't want that premature release of the warhead. So the linker plays a critical part in that. But you also want selective release of the warhead once it gets into the tumor and the tumor microenvironment. So it is, like you said, medicinal chemistry here. There's, there's a lot of properties that go into a linker to make sure that you achieve stability before it reaches the tumor, but then has that release of the payload once it gets inside the cell or in the tumor microenvironment. And, and these linkers, for better or for worse, have been dichotomized into two categories, these cleavable linkers and these non-cleavable linkers. Um, cleavable linkers really are, are a little bit more flexible in their ability to release the warhead from the monoclonal antibody. And they can release this under acidic conditions, under reducible conditions, or under conditions that have proteolytic enzymes. So it, this can happen in the tumor microenvironment and also more commonly in the tumor cell. Um, but most of the ADCs that we're talking about these days do have cleavable, cleavable linkers that give a little bit more flexibility in how these warheads are released from uh, the, the, the monoclonal antibody. In contrast, uh, non-cleavable linkers require degradation of this complex within the lysosome. So we'll talk a little bit about this, but these ADCs get attached to the antigen, they get internalized, and when they get internalized, they get placed into these lysosomes. Uh, and for the, the non-cleavable linkers, you have to be in that lysosome. The ADC complex has to be in that lysosome to be degraded and release its warhead. Now, this may have clinical implications, um, and I mentioned this today, that you know, non-excuse me, cleavable linkers may have the ability uh, to elicit more of a bystander effect. So these 
warheads can be detached from the monoclonal antibody under a little bit more flexible conditions, which may allow for tumor cell kill for those cells that express the protein, but also may uh, be able to, the payload may be able to reach adjacent cells that don't necessarily uh, have the target, and that can have this bystander effect. So, um, you know, law, again, uh, of, of biochemistry, uh, synthetic biochemistry that's helping to create these constructs is critical. So if we think of the main components that are differentiating these ADCs and how we're describing them, we've got the antibody, the linker, and the payload. There's the three main components, and we're going to shuffle those pieces around. Ben, bring it together. How do these drugs work? What's the mechanism of action? How are these effectively treating cancer? Carefully. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it's the, the mechanisms of action are really complex. I mean, there's a very nice story and there's a very nice picture that shows that the antibody binds to antigen. The antigen then in, internalizes the ADC complex. The ADC complex then releases its payload in the cell, and that causes apoptosis. It's a very nice story. Uh, but we know that there are other mechanisms at play. I don't want to get too nuanced or into the weeds, uh, but there are other mechanisms, including the bystander effect that I mentioned to you, where a, tar a tumor cell that has a particular target or an antigen is able to take up the ADC and endocytosis and release the payload, but then the payload is able to diffuse into cells adjacent that don't have that target having this bystander effect. The other thing that I think is really important is this ADCC mechanism of action or antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity, which is essentially that the monoclonal antibody binds to antigen, but then the FC portion of that monoclonal antibody is able on the other side to engage effective, effective immune cells, effector immune cells, which then in turn uh, can, can elicit an immune response. And this has lots of clinical implications. I don't want to get again too deep uh, into things, but these drugs, yes, they may be chemotherapy. Yes, they may be targeted therapy. They may be chemotherapy 2.0, uh, but they may be, uh, have an immunotherapeutic effect as well. So I think, again, we have just a nascent understanding of how these drugs work. We are in the beta version of these drugs. And but, so, you know, we'll, we'll certainly see what uh, is, is going to happen in the future. We've got a, a lot of ADCs, and we have more coming. And I think what I take away from the three of your descriptions really is that these are, are different molecules, and all these details probably matter. You know, I'm sort of of the mind that PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors are probably more similar than different, to some extent maybe a little bit interchangeable. Definitely not the case for ADCs. Do you agree, Solange? Yeah, it's not the case because we have been seeing that this differential expression might vary from one tumor to the other one, but might also vary from one subhistological subtype. And more importantly, the efficacy of this turnover, right, the internalization might vary from one target to the other one, right? We think sometimes that oncogene addiction, you know, this uh, to take uh, some example, the HER2, uh, when it's mutated in a driver, it might rotate uh, from the inside to the outside more frequently, so be more efficiently bound. So each of these targets has its own property, its own turnover, turnaround, its own expression, its own heterogeneity, homogeneity. So each of these antibody drug conjugates will work differently uh, across diseases, but in the same disease too. So I would say they are all different compounds, uh, without speaking about payloads and linker, which make an additional layer of difference. But just thinking about the binding target, we look at different targets, different mechanisms. Great point here. I mean, uh, we, we have the luxury of really focusing on lung cancer up here, but if you're yeah. treating multiple cancers, 
some of these drugs have you know, different doses, yeah. different biomarkers, maybe even different mechanisms of action yeah. in different tumor types. And so all these variables will come to play, but these really are not interchangeable. Each molecule is a little bit different. Again, the three structural components, antibody, linker, payload. Now, when I was taught, admittedly a little while ago, I was taught that antibodies are too big to cross the blood-brain barrier. And so I would think that antibodies wouldn't really be effective in brain mets. In this setting for ADCs, would I be wrong, Melissa? You'd be wrong, Stephen. This is also an area of active investigation, and so we don't have this data for, for many of the, uh, uh, of the ADCs. However, we've heard, um, we've heard rumblings from our breast cancer colleagues that uh, 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 trastuzumab can, for example, has good brain penetration. I've seen uh, uh, penetration of the brain in um, the IDXD that in small cell lung cancer that we'll talk about at the very end. So it, it's possible. It's fascinating why that would be. And I think we know that the blood-brain barrier breaks down for a variety of reasons. And, uh, and, and maybe this is, uh, this is able to penetrate for, uh, for other reasons as well that we don't know yet. Now, we're sort of bridging between these classes, but a couple key points that come up a lot in my discussions. Antibody drug conjugates are not really an immunotherapy agent. We don't hesitate to use steroids around them. We're not really worried about immune-related adverse events. Uh, while they are targeted, the toxicities, I would say, align a little more closely to chemotherapy than targeted therapy. Is that something fair to say, Solange? Yeah, I think so. The toxicity has nothing to do with an activation of the T-cell component in an, I would say, sometimes a specific manner um, uh, targeting uh, normal tissue, right? You don't see the diarrhea, the rash, or the uh, immune-mediated side effects at all. But you see the payload, and while the colleagues were telling it's not so simple, is we would like this chemo to be only released where the tumor is. But we know that all of this step of trafficking until the tumor and be released only there are always a little bit bit inaccurate, not 100% how it should be. So meaning that here you can observe the way down to the tumor, the side effect of the chemo. So uh, we will discuss it for each of them later on, but the category of toxicities will resemble somehow to what we observe with chemo, usually to a lower extent, we hope, of course, better than docetaxel, that's the aim, but still something in that category of side effects. Yeah, I think with side effects, we just want to know what to expect and help our patients understand what to expect. But unlike an oral TKI, with a lot of these ADCs, we might see myelosuppression, we might see alopecia, nausea and vomiting. As an oncologist, we need to prepare our patients for that, but also pre-medication for nausea and vomiting, monitoring for counts, proper counseling. So it's really important we understand the toxicities. All right, so let's talk about some of the evidence, some of the trials. We're going to start with what I think is the most important part of today. Key trials, latest evidence. Uh, we're going to start with understanding this important family, the ERB family, and how we can target HER2 and HER3. Uh, ERB, human epidermal growth factor receptor. HER1, we know as EGFR. HER2, we're very familiar with in oncology. HER3, HER4, other members of this family, they have a lot of common structural features. And one is a lot of them feed into those same critical signaling pathways, like the PI3 kinase AKT pathway, like the MAP kinase pathway. And as a result, they are commonly activated across tumor types cancers really derive from overactivation, overstimulation of these pathways. They then also represent therapeutic targets. When we think of HER2, HER2 is very familiar in oncology. Um, this really is uh, very important in breast cancer, but for other tumor types, when we think HER2, we're thinking overexpression by immunohistochemistry. We're thinking 
amplification in lung cancer, it's a different biomarker. So same molecule, but different biomarker. And so if we have non-small cell lung cancer, uh, we're really looking at HER2 mutation uh, as something that's relevant. And for HER2 mutant non-small cell lung cancer, in the past, most of the drugs we had that targeted HER2 were tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And for the most part, these were disappointing, either because of very low response rates, sometimes in the single digits, or some more encouraging responses, but coupled with really intolerable toxicity. And so TKIs really have sort of stopped being as promising for HER2. Trastuzumab, very important drug for breast cancer, but uh, not really enough activity in lung cancer. It really was the ADCs that are making a difference in HER2. And this is now why we have approved targeted therapies. So let's talk about the first um, of these ADCs, and that's TDM1, trastuzumab emtansine. These are really fun molecules to say, so I encourage everyone to practice these at home. Uh, Solange, why don't we talk to, about TDM1 as a drug? Yeah. Thanks so much. So we have been learning a lot, or we have been trying to learn as much as we can about her two from the lung cancer, uh, the breast cancer clinics. So they've been developing the testings, they've been classifying their breast cancer according to her two positivity or not, and they've been using this drug before us. So, sorry, we've made an, a mistake, is to think that we could use this drug the same way, in the same, using the same biomarkers. So TDM1 is uh, following the usual definition of antibody drug conjugate with a cleavable uh, linker with a payload which is on the family of microtubule uh, inhibitors, uh, formation inhibitors, uh, which is uh, this uh, DM1 component, myotensin, and it has usually three, one, say, three to five molecules. It can vary in a batch, by the way, two to five molecules bound to the antibody. Very famous drug because it plays a central role in the development of the treatment of breast cancer. So naively, we saw breast cancer, they use usually overexpression to be a surrogate for amplification. So they do overexpression. If it's three plus, it's fine because they are all amplified. If it's two plus, they verify amplification and they use TDM1 and it works. So in lung cancer, we said, let's do the same. Problem is lung cancer, first of all, overexpression is rare maybe 20% of the patients, very rare, rarely high level of uh, overexpression, maybe 10%. And this does not correlate with amplification. Guess why? This is another mechanism of activation. And this does not correlate with uh, um, mutations neither. And mutations are very rarely found in breast cancer. So HER2 is still signaling the same way, but modified in the cancer subtype, which is lung cancer, completely differently to be activated. And unfortunately, on the contrary of breast cancer, if you focus on this 20% of patients with 2 plus or 3 plus overexpression, which again is not correlated with amplification, you have, I would say, modest activity, if any, very low activity. We, we were very disappointed publishing it. This is not the way to identify the population of patients to receive TDM1. It was too much of a screening effort for a look at the spider plot, a result which was not in favor uh, or above the other treatment strategies we can have, docetaxel does way better than that. <laughs> this is uh, the PFS and the overall survival. I always like to look uh, here uh, at the PFS and it's classified by the level of expression of, of HER2. This is really not what you'd like to observe. Very short PFS, maybe almost the time of the first assessment, right? Yeah. So there is something that shows that this is not decent activity of this compound. So th then, 
In parallel to our trial, which was a, a kind of a failure in the hypothesis, the colleagues tried to look at HER2 uh, in a way which was uh, slightly more exciting because they looked at this other subtype of activation, which is mutation or amplification. Here it's a very small subset. Huh? Two person, two, three person, two, three person, but different alterations and probably they are drivers. So the turnover, the way the receptors goes in and out of the cell might be more often encountered. So they tried to use a TDM1 in these uh, uh, two subgroups of patients. And as you can see here, in both subgroups, amplified or mutated, it's way better, right? 50% more or less uh, a response rate. Some durability, maybe not completely satisfying, but some good responses, so way better that's what we observed uh, in the uh, uh, story of overexpression. So amplified or mutated can be treated by TDM1, but still with response rate a little around 50, maybe slightly lower, uh, and, uh, and the durability which could be uh, improved. But it was still an option until we met. <laughs> now, TDM1, I, my own clinical experience has really been this, that this is a drug that I find works pretty well for a little while. Well-tolerated drug, but the durability is sort of a, a bit lacking. Has that been your experience as well, Melissa? Yes, I, th I think we have, uh, w we've also um, woke up to the fact that HER2 was a biomarker, mut uh, mutations in HER2, that it was a biomarker that we needed to be checking for earlier in uh, patients' disease courses, I would say in the last five years, right? So I, I haven't treated a whole lot of people with TDM1. Um, I knew that trastuzumab and venerelbine, which was the standard before that, didn't, really didn't work that well at all. Um, but I, I think the, the point is, uh, in my practice, uh, HER2 mutations are challenging because there's, they're not just EGFR exon 19 and L858R. There are 20, 25 different uh, chunks of DNA that can be deleted that equal a HER2 mutated cancer. So, and, and I would say um, we, should, we might find it on a profile as ERBB. We might find it on a profile as HER2. Um, and so there's a, there are a lot of reasons that we've kind of just woken up to the fact that this is a, a subset of, of oncogene-driven cancer. Yeah, all these details matter. And, you know, Ben, when we're describing patients to each other, you can't say HER2 positive. No. Right? You don't know what that means. Yeah, and your slide, I think, did that point justice with that, you know, there's these alterations are different. You have HER2 mutation, you have HER2 expression, and you have HER2 over amplification. And then, as Melissa said, within HER2 mutations, there's exquisite heterogeneity within her two mutations. So, and the whole ERBV2, uh, you know, notification on a next generation sequence report has to go away. Uh, you know, it has to be a HER2 you know, mutation. And, and it says that this HER2 mutation is sensitive to trastuzumab drug secan. That's, that's what it has to say. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about trastuzumab, Derek Stecan. Uh, Melissa, this is um, really the first approved ADC for lung cancer. This is also the last approved ADC for lung cancer. I wanted to walk us through a little bit about what this drug is. Sure. So we've uh, kind of we can apply our knowledge that we gained in the last session about the antibody being uh, trastuzumab directed against HER2. The linker you see here, it, it connects in through a cysteine moiety um, to the antibody, and then the payload is exotecan, a derivative of arenotecan or SN38. The DAR here is high, eight 
um, eight to one. So that means there are eight payloads uh, for every one antibody. Um, and uh, so this is, this is our first antibody um, that was evaluated in Destiny Lung 01. Now this slide or this uh, study was super interesting. It was a, a patients that were uh, relapsed refractory to their chemotherapy, um, and some of them I think had had an immunotherapy. Uh, asymptomatic CNS metastasis were allowed at baseline. There were two cohorts of patients uh, that were included in this trial to the point that we've been making now about the difference between a HER2 overexpressing patient by IHC and then these HER2 mutations that we would find on an NGS report. Um, the primary endpoint was objective response with uh, more durable uh, duration of response and PFS being secondary endpoints in this trial. Uh, one more point I want to make is that it used the highest dose, the recommended phase two dose, 6.4 milligrams per kilogram once every three weeks initially in both cohorts. And uh, keep your eye uh, on the dose as we go. So here's the results of the uh, cohort two, those patients that were HER2 mutated. This is the first um, uh, result in a group all HER2 mutated patients. So it, it, it's a pretty exceptional trial because these are so hard to find. Response rate, 55%. So a little better than the TDM1 that we were just talking about. It was true um, that response rate, whether patients had brain mets or not, and whether patients uh, uh, had had more than two or less than two prior therapies. So this is, I always like to see that if I can get response in a very pretreated patient, then that's showing a new mechanism that's showing a drug that's real. Now, look at the duration of response. That's where this drug starts to make its uh, mark and, and distinguishes itself from TDM1, the duration of response in the whole population, 10 months. That's pretty great compared to uh, venerelbine and uh, trastuzumab, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the, the duration in, in patients who had CNS metastasis, a little bit less, but um, and patients who were less heavily pretreated, duration of response 14 months you see in the bottom bullet. So think about that. Over a year in a, at least a second line patient population, uh, pretty great. Now, here's where the rubber hits the road. Let's start to talk about the toxicity um, of patients treated. Now, I, I would say trastuzumab durexican is pretty well tolerated, but even still in this group of patients that were treated with 6.4 milligrams per kilogram once every three weeks, the, there were uh, uh, grade three drug-related treatment emergent adverse events in roughly 50% of patients. And then look down at the bottom, those drug-related emergent uh, treatment emergent adverse events associated with discontinuation, a quarter of patients, dose reduction, a, a third of patients, dose interruption, a third of patients. And so th that starts to tell a story, right? That the, uh, the, it, while the duration of response was long, which we don't always see with poorly tolerated drugs, um, there were reasons that patients were taking a break from the drug. Um, and so I'll let, uh, 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 that's the first part of the story. Absolutely, and I think that, you know, when we look at this waterfall plot, what's the you know, this is targeted therapy. Yeah. Yes. This is what we expect, where okay. I walk in a room, I know there's a Hershey mutation. If I give this drug, 
we're going to get some benefit. Mm -hmm. We have had the confidence as an oncologist that this is going to benefit most people while the confirmed response rate, 55%. You can see the vast majority of people have some reduction. So this is targeted therapy. It really is that toxicity. If we look at the right, that adjudicated drug-related interstitial lung disease, that's the one that we're talking about. And we see that in 28%, we're seeing some ILD, some pneumonitis. And you know some of these are grade three, a couple of these were grade five, and that's scary in the lung cancer world. But as you mentioned, this is the higher dose. And because these drugs work in complex ways, maybe we don't need to give the highest dose that we can. And so the follow-up study was Destiny Lung 2. Ben, tell us about this trial. Yeah, you set the stage quite nicely. I mean, as Melissa mentioned, the 6.4 mg per kg dose, some of the toxicity may have been prohibitive, specifically the ILD rate of 27%. So the question here is, could you lower the dose, number one, and, and mitigate some of these toxicities by lowering the dose, and could you achieve the same efficacy? Uh, so this was not like Destiny Lung 1, this was all HER2 mutant lung cancer patients that were pretreated, that were randomized two to one to two different doses of trastuzumab drixican, a 6.4 mg per kg, that was the one randomization, uh, to 5.4 mg per kg. And, and the question really being asked here is, can you get away with a lower dose and, and, and elicit less toxicity, but also still have that meaningful uh, uh, improvement in response rates or meaningful uh, response rates uh, that are durable. And so um, this was trying to answer that question is, is you know, this is chapter two of the trastuzumab drug decan story in lung cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and so we looked at the response by Bicker and we saw the objective response rate in the 5.4 mg per kg dose was 53% uh, and the objective response rate in the uh, 6.4 was 42%. So even a little bit higher counterintuitively counter in the uh, 5.4 mg per kg. So question two is answered here that it seems like you can go with a lower dose but still achieve the same objective response rate. We see a disease control rate of 90% in each of the 5.4 and 6.4 mg per kg. But once again, this durability, not even being able to be reached in the, in the 5.4 mg per kg as of the data cutoff are not available in the 5.9 months in the, in the 6.4 mg per kg. So, um, you know, I think this was, this was giving us reassurances that we could give 5.4 uh, in terms of advocacy, but I think perhaps just as important was when we did 5.4 mg per kg, the, the adjudicated drug-related ILD, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was less than 6%. It was 5.9%. And so now in the 6.4 mg per kg, we saw 14%. That's a little lower than we saw in Destiny Lung 1. Um, but this answer, this hit the check boxes for the two questions. You know, can we get the same uh, response rates or not be even better with the 5.4? Yes. And can we uh, uh, potentially lower the, the ILD rates? Uh, and we were able to do that. And because of Destiny Lung 2, this drug got FDA approved. Uh, at the 5.4 mg per kg dose. So that's, that's critical, and that's part of the reason why something like this with peer review and longevity is so important, because let's say you are up to date, you find that HER2 mutation, you see ERBB2, and you know that's HER2, you pull it out, you're thinking, we're gonna do trastuzumab derixtecan at second line therapy, it's FDA approved, you're gonna go into the source literature, you're gonna pull in that New England Journal of Medicine article, not the one. Destiny lung one, <laughs> so you're going to 6.4. That's not, not the approved dose. I made that mistake. 
Um, not really, but I think it's, you, you, it's exactly right. You have to remember that the FDA approval came on the Destiny Lung 2 at the 5.4, and many folks have, have pulled that New England Journal of Medicine at the 6.4, mm -hmm. so I think it is critical to remember that. And I think for the physicians you are, when you will use this drug for the first time, keep in mind that this ILD level has been really lowered to a nice level, but still it happens. And still remember that because of the 6.4, the algorithm of management of ILD are very severe in the clinical trials. So if you have a grade one, no symptoms. You have to stop the drug yes. and give steroids. Yeah. If you have a grade two, you have to never give it again. So in the clinic, because you don't do CT scan every six weeks to all of your patients, always pay attention to this respiratory symptom because it might happen between two CT scans, right? And you might still follow the algorithms that have to be found on, you can find them online, but you have to follow the caution they, they advise for. So other physician ILD should always be somewhere in your ear, right? Absolutely, great point, we think. Yeah. TDXD, we're going to make sure we're watching for pneumonitis. We're going to remember that the FDA-approved and appropriate dose is 5.4 milligrams per kilogram every three weeks. 5.4, not the New England Journal, 6.4. So it's that 5.4 Q3 weeks. Now, here's a question. When I think antibody drug conjugate, thinking an antibody is going to bind to the antigen. And so I would expect that if you had lots of protein, its drug's going to work better. And we saw here that overexpression wasn't really the predictor. HER2 mutation was the predictor. But how does that make sense? Solange, why, why does mutation predict better response for an antibody drug conjugate? Well, the, the right answer is we have lots of hypotheses, but we don't know. But there might be two hypotheses which are intuitive, and intuition is not always true in medicine or right. But first of all is maybe the affinity of the antibody to a certain protein. Depending on the mutation, it might slightly vary in the uh, affinity in binding and the duration of binding. But more importantly, as we said before, it might be how this uh, molecule mutated is internalized over time, how often this molecule uh, binding the antibody and the ADCs or this herb uh, 2 her 2 is internalized in and out uh, in terms of frequency and probability. So it's probably because of the biology of this turnover of the receptors that there is a difference, but that is one hypothesis. Otherwise, it would not really make sense that there is a difference. The more would be the best. So there must be something dynamic that we uh, insufficiently measure, and it's very difficult to measure. The other thing, remember, in lung cancer, HER2 is expressed in a very heterogeneous manner as compared to breast cancer, where it's kind of a carpet. In lung cancer, it can be very variable from one cell to the other one. So all of these parameters are not so much well explained, controlled, and described using the usual parameters of immunohistochemistry and so on. Yeah, we can't make assumptions that we understand how everything is going to work. Ben, how do you explain this? Yeah, no, I think Solange hit the nail on the head. I think there's been some nice preclinical data showing that it's the HER2 mutant protein that's able to traffic these ADCs and internalize them better than just ordinary IHC, number one. This also may explain some of the clinical observations we have why these ADCs work in patients with driver mutations. Maybe all mutant proteins, whether it be EGFR or ALP, are better able to internalize and traffic the ADC than just having overexpression of an antigen. So you know, I think we're still learning, we're scratching the surface, but that is, I think, one of the hypotheses that is ongoing. 
and about dynamic. There were even patients in the journal, New England Journal of Medicine with no expression being measured yeah. on the surface, yeah. but mutated. So it means that it was had just gone in, right? Yeah. You just missed it somehow. Yeah. So <laughs> that's very dynamic. That's right. The biopsy is just a moment in time. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. happen right before we fixed mm. those cells. Uh, speaking of learning about what is happening, notable updates, we will expect late-breaking abstract 3,000 TDXD and HER2 expressing solid tumors in the pan tumor approach. Is this going to be an agnostic biomarker potentially? But for lung cancer, again, we're thinking of HER2 mutants. Let's go to a case. And this is a case from my own clinic at Georgetown. Some of the details have been changed, no names here. But let's talk about this case. And I want to ask you sort of what you would do and what you're thinking of. 72-year-old male who was incidentally found to have a lung nodule. This is a person that has no history of smoking, was getting an x-ray for a work physical, and they found a lung nodule, got a CT scan, 2.8 centimeter left lower lobe lung nodule, PET scan of the body, MRI of the brain with no uptake. This person did not get metastinal staging because they didn't see an oncologist or a pulmonologist, <laughs> saw a surgeon, went right to surgery. Uh, had a lobectomy. T2N1 adenocarcinoma, low PDL1, HER2 exon 20 mutation. Um, then that patient came to see me. And so we talked about the role of adjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, this was a few years ago now, and so we didn't talk about immunotherapy, but chemotherapy, we did four cycles of cisplatin pemetrexed. I don't do a lot of vinarelbine in DC, uh, <laughs> but uh, four cycles of chemotherapy, and he did well. And after that, we went into radiographic surveillance. And I think this is a pretty standard case. And our hope here is that this patient is cured from their cancer, but we know that a node-positive lung cancer, they really have nasty ways of, of coming back. And then, true enough, on surveillance, we did see three new sclerotic bone lesions, didn't want to make assumptions again, so we biopsied. And in fact, they did have adenocarcinoma. So if I stop here, Ben, what do you do here? Well, I think this patient came to see me as a second opinion after they saw you. <laughs> that's, that's about right. <laughs> the natural progression. Um, can you remind me when the sclerotic lesions occurred after the surgery? I didn't say, but I want you to tell me how that would impact what you do. Yeah, I think if it was early on after the chemotherapy, I would consider this patient to really not have gained the mileage from chemotherapy that we would want him or her to have had him. Um, so I would have a low threshold to start this patient on trastuzumab drug CCAN if it were just two months after getting cisplatin pimetrexid. I think if, it's okay. So that, that's what I would do. Depending on the timing, I would think this patient would be chemo-refractory in some ways because the progression occurred so quickly after the chemotherapy was delivered. Man, the way that the podiums are set up, you can't see the face Melissa's making, but it's pretty good. So, uh, MJ, what are you thinking here? Well, I, you know, I, I don't disagree with Ben, but um, the, but whether the radiographic or the, the bone lesions um, uh, come up after two months or, or two years, I think I would use in her too. Response rate, 60%. Duration of response, 10 months. We, uh, patients with HER2 mutations don't always do as well with platinum uh, uh, pemetrexid. Uh, uh, so, I, you know, I, I think uh, if I could get it, um, and I could, uh, <laughs> I, I would give, and her, I would give uh, trastuzumab drugs to cancer. I'm so, making a face back here. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. Ben's making the exact same face <laughs> that you're making to him. Solange, what are you going to do here? 
the same as the same um, as Melissa. I guess um, we have in the at the time being, of course, it's not the approval, but and it's under a clinical assessment at the time being. But the, the magnitude of benefit of uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan is in line with what we would call a frontline metastatic treatment. Uh, of course, it's under clinical trial. It will be compared to platinum-based chemotherapy. It's ongoing. It's doing well. But we like this drug because it's here you have given platinum-based chemotherapy. You can argue it was given, so that resistance happened, and you can have access. So it's maybe an exceptional case where you can get the benefit of giving this drug early. It's not the case with all the antibody drug conjugate we see, but this one has the shape of a frontline strategy. So maybe one thing just, I remember always Charlie Swanton, our genetician of cancer. Having lesions is or has always a question is how many? because he has this theory of clonal divergence, so try to always ablate if you can ablate. So my trastuzumab drugs taken, I would do, but depending on how many lesions are there, I always consider potentially some radiation for any oligometastatic disease, because the more clones you have, the more difficult to treat the disease become over time. All right, well, this makes me feel a little better despite the scathing second opinion I got from Ben. <laughs> Can I just make one clarification? I'm sorry, I have to say, if this were a year after uh, the patient got adjuvant chemotherapy, I would consider rechallenging the patient with with, with uh, platinum doublet. Just a question, would you add IO? Because that, that you was spoke the other thing about immunotherapy say. in the adjuvant yeah. setting, and it's a matter of debate. I would, but this is really not the majority of oncologists. Uh, yeah, I, I think I would consider giving, this patient's gonna get trastuzumab drug secan. It's going to happen. And I guess you could make the argument that if you treat the patient first with platinum, they're less likely to get it, because you know patients do fall off the cliff sometimes. But if it were a year after, I may give this patient carboplatin, pimetrexid, with or without pembrolizumab, see if I can get some mileage, and then uh, transition to to trastuzumab druxican. A question was asked earlier today uh, about the overlapping toxicity of doing IO followed by trastuzumab druxican. I don't think we have a lot of data on that, but I would be concerned. Uh, well, I, actually, um, I, I I think as as we look at the ILD uh, across the antibody drug conjugates, I, I don't know that we see um, an association with any prior treatment, IO or radiation. I, I was actually going to say that... Um, you know, that's actually another appealing thing about antibody drug conjugates is that you can follow up a chemo IO or an IO strategy where, whereas uh, I've, I had a patient uh, reminiscent of this one who I put on a trial to get a HER2 TKI after uh, she had had chemo immunotherapy and ended up having uh, autoimmune hepatitis from the TKI. So we don't have to, at least uh, so far, we don't have to worry as much about overlapping toxicity here right. in my experience. It's, it's a kind of always a philosophical kind of answer. You have to give, depending on the time elapsed, that's right. The drug where you think you'll get the most important magnitude of effect, the more durable, the most uh, striking, fast, and so on. And, and that's very important because remember that you will give one line, but in half of your patient, you will not give a second line. That's absolutely correct. For the board purposes, for CME, <laughs> trastuzumab is approved for previously treated, and we wouldn't use it as a frontline treatment. We really would use it after chemotherapy. In this setting, a year had passed. In this setting, I gave him TDXD. He had a great response. After six months, I radiated everything. We stopped drug, disease-free for going on a year. 
Um, part of the reason we also stopped is we did start to see pneumonitis. And so we saw a grade one pneumonitis, just radiographic. Um, at that point, we said, we're going to stop this drug. Mm -hmm. We've got good control. We're going to come and radiate and watch. And so far, so good. But let's talk about pneumonitis and ILD management. You made the important point, Solange, that even though the incidence is low, 6%, you don't want to miss that 6%. Mm -hmm. And it's really important that we think of how to identify and how to manage pneumonitis. And so we're going to borrow a lot from our breast cancer colleagues that have more experience here. And there's a recent paper here from Dr. Tarantino looking at the five S rules. Um, screen, we're going to think of who is at greatest risk for ILD. We're going to think about you know, pulmonary function at baseline scan. Our primary modality for identifying pneumonitis is CT scans. We're going to do those on a regular basis. Synergy is referring to engaging the patient, partnering with the patient and their caregivers. What kinds of symptoms to look for? That if someone is feeling suddenly more short of breath, it's not because they're out of shape. It's not because of allergies. They need to tell us right away. Caregivers need to watch for that. And if we see it, we suspend treatment. We stop treatment, we hold, and then we're generous in giving steroids to really gain control of it. We need a healthy respect for pneumonitis because things can get bad pretty quickly. You agree with that? It's very different from I.O. because for I.O. it can fluctuate somehow, having a, a, a positive cost without doing anything. So when you have a grade one, a radio, pure radiologic infiltrate on I.O., you have the right to continue to observe. With these drugs, when it starts to, with this trastuzumab deruxtecan, when it starts to appear, it never, I never have seen that it will improve spontaneously under the treatment. So you have to stop. Yeah. And that's really something different from I.O. It's different. Let's move on to some of the other ADCs. Again, trastuzumab deruxtecan is our approved drug, 5.4 mg per kg every three weeks. That is our approved drug. Let's talk about drugs that are coming around the corner. Um, Patritimab deruxtecan, some things in similar, some different. Solange, can you tell us about this molecule and why it's important? Yeah, so I think our discussion on, uh, on, on trastuzumab deruxtecan helps because you have understood that the payload is the same. The structure is very similar. The target is different. is a sister or the cousin, the Hursri, which uh, is one of the partners of the, of the family, which interestingly was already studied and explored uh, very, I would say, frequently in the past in the setting of resistance. It was considered HER3 to be potentially a mechanism of resistance to EGFR inhibitors. Never really was a good target, but is known to be expressed routinely and very often on non-small cell lung cancer, but also maybe predominantly at resistance to EGFR TKI. So this is a, a moiety of anti-HER3 antibody with, again, uh, 8 to 10 molecules of uh, deruxtecan and uh, a cleavable linker. So same strategy, same company, very uh, interesting compound. HER3 is therefore expressed in the vast majority of the normal cell lung cancer, and, and obviously it was tested in the CGFR setting to start because it was making sense. So basically there were different cohorts. I don't want to go to all the complexity of what has still to come, but what is interesting, there were different doses, uh, of course, in the dose escalation phase and an expansion phase. The most important cohort for us is to look at this adenocarcinoma with EGFR mutations, receiving the drug at progression after after at least the targeted therapy or zimertinib or another one, but a TKI, uh, and maybe even more lines of treatment. And you've seen this trial that most of the time it's, it's more lines of treatment. So this is uh, how it was, um, it, it was described. So the final dose which is retained is 5.6, uh, but you can see that, uh, you can also see the results across the various dosages given in the phase one trial. You can see here's the patient characteristic. What is probably important to look at is most of this patient had received 
receive ozimertinib plus platinum-based chemotherapy, plus half of them having also received IO, just showing that they are heavily pretreated, and also a population which worries the physician because we are not really confident in what to do next in this patient population, a docetaxel maybe. Yeah. That's okay. where we are. So basically, this is the data presented first uh, by Passiane Diasco uh, two years ago. So very interesting. Two divisions. Uh, the first one is just a broad group of patients having received prior TKI plus platinum-based chemotherapy. Uh, you can see a response rate of 39% here, which is way better than the 10% expected with docetaxel. So very nice, uh, I would say, um, a response rate. With what I like, the disease control rate is also important in terms of waterfall plot. 72% have a disease control. Uh, when you look at this specific cohort, which is maybe our patient population receiving specifically ozimertinib and platinum-based chemo, it's a subgroup of the other cohorts. It's interesting to see that it's independent of ozimertinib or not, still the response rate is 39%. So even in this patient, we treat with modern drugs being resistant to the best drugs, 39% response rate. This is um, the uh, update, which was uh, shown briefly at the JESMO meeting, Japanese society meeting, just because it increases the number of patients, it doubles the numbers, just to show you that if anything, the response rate is getting slightly higher, 40, 40 in the uh, old patients, 40 in the one treated with ozimertinib plus platinum-based chemotherapy. And just look down the slide, it's a larger cohort, a PFS of 6.4 months, and a survival, which, which, is, which is way above the oldest chemotherapy frontline, is 16 months, so it's really something which was above our expectation, even for the frontline chemotherapy in the past. So we are in uh, late lines and we have this uh, very nice result. What is interesting in the first analysis by Passiani, that he was showing the various mechanisms of resistance to EGFR-TKI we know. They can be one or accumulative uh, and they sometimes can be unknown, but what was interesting is basically the activity was completely independent of the mechanism of resistance uh, of EGFR. Just the toxicity, ILD, yes or no? So, of course, in all of this compound, always pay attention to ILD. But what was important here, it's again about 5 to 6 percent. But most of these ILD have been with this uh, uh, pachytumab deruxtecan low grade, but still uh, have be careful, manage them the way they should be managed according to the guidelines. And apart from that, you have your usual, you can see on the right side, some hematotoxicity, fatigue, uh, as well as GI toxicity, but really very well tolerated compound, I must say. Uh, and of course, while this whole tree is an ill-defined molecule, we thought about the uh, EGFR mechanism of resistance, but it also expressed on cells which have nothing to do with EGFR addiction, right? So there was a subset of patients, you can see 47 patients, who have or not oncogene addiction, but another type of oncogene addiction, which can be atypical EGFR, but also uh, other types of, uh, uh, of alterations, or no alteration. And you can see when you have other alterations in the upper panel, you still have a response rate uh, close to 30%. And when you have no alterations, the non-oncogene addicted, we call it the wild type, you still have 27% person response rate. So it's even a compound which might have a development which is all comers and not EGFR, but we have more data in EGFR to be really correct at the time being. So most of the data here in EGFR that we're seeing, and I, I want to be clear, um, when we talk about HER3 as a target here, it's not that HER3 is causing resistance no. to the osimertinib. That's not a resistance mechanism. Here, the HER3 is just there. It's just yeah. present, highly expressed yeah. in EGFR. We don't know what it's doing. Yeah. It's not meeting resistance, but it's there. And if it's there, 
try to exploit that presence, try to leverage. The hypothesis for resistance is it can, it can also dimerize with EGFR. It can dimerize the family. So it was thought that it could help in resisting to EGFR. When you block EGFR, it could help in binding a signaling despite the blockade of EGFR. But it was very hypothetical. And by the way, if you try to measure HER3, and correlate the response rate in that trial with HER3, whatever method you use, right? Uh, it can be uh, immunohistochemistry, it can be quantifying with a scoring system. Then what is important is you cannot predict. So it's not related to the quantity, again, of HER3 protein. I think this shows a lot of promise. It's clearly an active drug, and you know, I think this is a very exciting molecule for EGFR. But probably I think the most excitement uh, in ADCs outside of the approved drugs really is with trope 2 as a molecule. And let's talk a little bit about what trope 2 is. Melissa? Sure. Maybe one last comment on pertritumab durexican, why I think that's a great drug, is that, uh, you remember, we talked about the rebiopsying and, this, and the circulating tumor DNA and all of that at the beginning. Uh, this is a drug that appears to work irrespective of, yes. of uh, mechanism of resistance. So for, uh, and there will be clinical situations where, the, where that is relevant. TROP2, on the other hand, is, uh, is a well, it's a highly expressed uh, uh, glycoprotein in non-small cell and other solid tumors. It's been associated with poor, uh, poor outcomes uh, when it is uh, shown to be expressed on, uh, in adenocarcinoma in particular. Um, I'll just, uh, you know, now at this point, we've seen uh, the uh, illustration of the antibody drug conjugate a couple times. I'll just make the point that the DAR here is four as compared to eight in pertritumab and uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan. And we'll move along to the tropion pan tumor one study design. Here, th this was a, a phase one study that only enrolled lung cancer patients. We, we don't see a lot of uh, those these days. Um, and patients were enrolled irrespective of trope two. They didn't have to express it. Um, I loved this trial because it didn't matter how fast the patients were progressing, they could go on uh, this drug. We evaluated a number of doses from point to seven, all the way up to 10 milligrams per kilogram. I treated that patient at 10 milligrams per kilogram. The maximally tolerated dose uh, was eight milligrams per kilogram, and then the dose expansion went on to evaluate four, six, and eight, um, with the primary endpoint being the established NTD and safety. So uh, the interesting thing about DATO DXD, and, and I always sort of looked at these spider plots on the bottom right and the waterfall plot um, in the top right and thought, well, what, what am I? What, what difference am I seeing here? And, and if you're asking yourself the same question, the point is that there's not a whole lot of difference, but that there is a, a great response rate. Response rate across the board from four to eight was around uh, 24. 5%, uh, so a quarter of patients responding. And then the median duration um, at the time of the data cut of uh, the initial data cut of this phase one trial um, not reached not reached in the four milligrams per kilogram, around 10, milligram, 10 months for patients treated in both uh, six and eight milligrams uh, per kilogram. Um, I, I think the maybe you might 
say that the patient's treated at eight milligrams per kilogram, there's more uh, heft or more depth uh, or, or more blue at the bottom of the spider plot to suggest that uh, maybe uh, more patients were actually shrinking. But I, I think the take home lesson is that um, eight milligrams per kilogram was the, um, was the maximally tolerated dose, but there's definitely activity at four, six, and eight. Um, so here's the safety profile, and here's where, uh, in my opinion, um, this drug uh, differentiates in itself um, in a, not in a favorable way from the other two that we've talked about uh, tonight. You see that the grade three adverse events uh, around 50% uh, for the uh, six milligrams per kilogram and, and about 50% for the eight milligrams per kilogram. You see that um, a number of uh, smaller percentage, around 20%, uh, were uh, discontinued, uh, patients in this trial discontinued uh, due to adverse events. The adverse events that were adjudicated as ILD were, were low. Um, this is an all-comers patient population. On the right-hand side of the screen, you see the spider plot that examines um, other adverse events. This drug causes nausea, causes stomatitis. I, I would say all of these exotecan derivatives can cause alopecia, um, as well as uh, some of the other side effects you see towards the bottom of the screen, including dry eye and mucosal inflammation. Um, so this, this drug feels uh, very different from the other two, and I would say uh, maximal nausea uh, management with your 5-HT3 and your NK1, um, as well as steroids, uh, is important here from the beginning. I want to be conscious of time and make sure we get through everything we need to cover, but you did not mention a biomarker here, Melissa. Is that intentional? Um, yes, Stephen, because uh, as of now, uh, we don't think that it, uh, response uh, to trope 2 ADCs is correlated uh, with trope 2 expression. Ben, can we use these drugs earlier? Good question. Um, so we were fortunate to be a part of the experience and lead this trial and presented at World Lung in Vienna. I'm going to not go through all the details here. The bottom line is it was asking the question how this drug performs uh, at two different doses in combination with Pembro, at two different doses in combination with carboplatin, and two different doses, excuse me, two different doses complied with pembrolizumab and carboplatin, and two different doses combined with uh, uh, cisplatin and pembrolizumab. And so these are cohorts one through six. I think importantly, um, again, unenriched patient populations in each of these cohorts. For cohorts three through six, where you're looking at datapotamab at either four milligrams per, per kilogram or six milligrams per kilogram in combination with Pembro and Platinum, there was an expansion phase of each of these cohorts, as, as well as the cisplatin cohorts, where you're looking at treatment-naive patients. This is the first experience looking at the combination of datapotamab with either pembrolizumab or with platinum pembrolizumab, uh, again, treatment-naive patients. So we'll see an update on this at the oral session at Lung on Tuesday. Um, in terms of the safety, and, and I think Melissa did, did, uh, went over this quite well, I mean, the big issue here is stomatitis. Believe it or not, we saw more of it in the doublet arm than in the triplet arm. That may be due to the fact there was more exposure in the doublet arm than triplet arm. Uh, and in terms of, of, of really the efficacy in the first line, encouraging activity, both in the doublet arm and in the triplet arm. Again, first study that we've seen uh, combining uh, or looking at an ADC in the front line. So we'll have to see how this data bears, bears out with more patients. Also, just sort of mention that in those with an axonal genomic alteration, we did see activity here. Again, for sake of time, we'll go through this 
pretty quickly, but we are seeing activity um, after TKIs, and as Ben mentioned, there will be an update on Tuesday with Dr. Goto, um, so be sure to tune in on that. There's another Trope 2 ADC that's pretty far along, and that's Sasituzumab govotecan, or SASCG. Uh, Lisa, <laughs> tell us about this molecule. Sure. So this is a, actually a drug that's older than uh, Dato DXD. Um, uh, it has a, a couple uh, differences. The DAR here is seven to eight, and it has a hydrolyzable linker. Um, in, in, and by now, I think you're familiar with how you might modulate these uh, different variables to make a different drug. Um, the IMU-132 study actually was reported for the first time at ASCO in 2017. So this is a group of, it's important to know that because this is a group of patients that weren't hadn't all seen immunotherapy <coughs> in the uh, pre-immunotherapy days. Patients were relapsed, refractory, and and otherwise this was a um, a phase uh, phase 1b study that looked at two doses of sasituzumab govotecan uh, in lung cancer patients and then had a basket for many other types of uh, n many other tumor types. Response right here a little lower, uh, about 16% um, in the duration of response a little shorter, six months. But again, um, you know, we often see these days that immunotherapy um, may improve the responses. We see this with docetaxel that may improve the responses of subsequent lines of therapy. And so we don't know that that wouldn't be the case here. We see uh, impressive uh, waterfall plot. Um, the safety profile is a little different with this trope 2 antibody drug conjugate. Um, this is more, this, uh, this antibody drug conjugate has more diarrhea still nausea, some cytopenias, um, especially neutropenia. Evoke 1, uh, which is a second-line trial uh, akin to tropion lung 1, um, comparing the trope 2 ADCs versus docetaxel. These trials, uh, both with Dato and SASE, are fully accrued, and we're uh, waiting for events, I guess. Um, and then, likewise, Evoke 2 in the front line with platinum and immunotherapy, so a very similar uh, disease or uh, development plan um, as Ben outlined. So we're excited uh, for these, and uh, I think, you, you know, you could say this is like the Republicans and the Democrats, you know, we're not quite sure which one's going to win, um, so it's important to know about both. And maybe there's room for both, that's right. All right, so let's talk about uh, some other targets that are important, that are coming along. One is CEA-CAM5. Uh, maybe I'll ask you, Salams, to walk us through how this uh, molecule can be leveraged. Thanks so much. So you can see on these graphs, the CKM5, which is one of these antigen which we use for binding an ADC. And here we'll speak about biomarker for the first time, which is, which is good. <laughs> so basically, uh, this is, um, uh, it's called Tuzamitamab raftensin. We'll call it Tuza just to make it short. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, the structure now. So it's uh, targeting CKM5. So CKM5 for CEA, so you see, you know, from uh, colorectal disease, CAM for cell adhesion molecules, and 5 because they are 12s in the family, and this is the number five. Uh, like I said before, the CKM5 has been correlated with poor outcome when it's overexpressed in tumors like all of these biomarkers, and can be identified in very frequently on several tumor types, including, of course, GI malignancies, but also adenocarcinoma, and mainly adenocarcinoma more non-squamous than squamous. It's important to keep it in mind. Cytotoxic agent is the same family, the DM4, very close to the DM1, so the neighbor of the DM1, with a cleavable inside the 
cell linker in the early endosomes. So something you're familiar with. The development, to make a long story short, happened in the biomarker positive because no activity was seen in biomarker negative. And more importantly, very low expression while found in squamous. Reason why we go for non-squamous with two definitions of CKM5 high, which is more than two plus expression, but in most of the cell or an intermediate number of the cell, more than 50% or one to 50%. So intermediate is one to 50%, more than 50% expression, two plus at least is high expression. So that's why the development was done, but you can see in orange that the development happens also in that other disease entity. And this is the data we will report about a dose with a dose of 100 milligrams per square meter. Be careful every two weeks. So this is a little mm. bit more annoying. <laughs> so basically response rate, in high expressors was uh, in this uh, patient population 20%, uh, in moderate expressors slightly lower, 7.1. You can see it very nicely on the waterfall plot. It speaks for itself, right? There is an activity, but you'd like really to think that this activity uh, is seen more in high expressors, which unfortunately represent a small proportion of the patients you meet in the clinic, probably 10 to 15% of this patient, depending on the series, but a minority uh, of these patients. So this is the overall response. Interestingly, the side effect, again, the mystery of this antibody drug conjugate uh, is, um, uh, I would say, uh, the one we have described with GI toxicity, some arthralgia, uh, which is uh, a little, uh, um, I would say, unusual, some dyspnea, which was uh, uh, roughly qualified as being tumor-related or treatment-related. So there might be some ILD2, be careful about it, but very important, corneal side effect. The eye can be infiltrated with inflammatory components. This is really ugly picture. Every time I see it, it's a terrible thing. <laughs> but the DM4 <laughs> induced microcytic corneal dystrophy has been observed, unfortunately, in this trial. You can see if you look at the grade one, two, and grade three, in close to 40% of the patients. So unfortunately, it's specific to this uh, antibody. Uh, fortunately, it's specific to this one, but unfortunately, it happens very often. It occurs very fast in the first four cycles. It is manageable. You have to stop the drug, delay the next dose, and uh, you have to give time to recovery. And what is used and tried is to give topical uh, steroids. But it unfortunately cannot be used in prophylaxis. It doesn't work. Right. So you have to tell your patient, give the drug, and stop, manage the toxicity if it happens. And it happens. I've not written so many patients, but I've seen it kind of a one out of two. And, and it's really something which is impressive for the patient, very disturbing, very annoying. It's important to say. Still, the, the, the activity wa was something uh, interesting with this compound. Yeah, so good activity, important toxicity, but manageable if we're aware of it, watching out for it. Yeah. Ben, how can we leverage MET expression with ADCs? Yeah, I think we need to know, like her too, that MET expression doesn't mean MET overamplification and doesn't mean MET exon 14 skipping mutations. Most of the ADCs that we're looking at at MET are looking mostly at C-MET overexpression. Talisatuzumab Vindotin is an anti-C-MET ADC. It has an MMA uh, a warhead, a microtubular destabilizer. Uh, and the data that we've uh, had with Talisatuzumab Vindotin uh, has been looking at, was leveraged in several different patient populations. It was uh, looked at in a non-squamous EGFR mutant patient population that um, if they were mutant, were they C-MET high or intermediate? And if they weren't mutant, also a CMET high and intermediate, as well as a squamous cell patient population. And interestingly, the objective response rates seem to be best in the EGFR wild type CMET high. 
Uh, so, you know, the jury's still out on whether we can leverage this drug in EGFR mutant lung cancer. There's been some data from last year at ASCO suggesting it may be able to target uh, mechanisms of resistance that are MET amplified or MET overexpressed, but this data would suggest it has activity in the EGFR wild type patient that is CMET high. This is, you know, one of the few data sets we have showing that potentially IHC does predict efficacy to these drugs. Um, so, yeah. We're excited about the drug. <laughs> now, we've been limited to targets that are more expressed on the tumor and not so much on normal cells, but maybe there's a way around that. Melissa, can you tell us what conditionally active biologics are? Yes. Uh, we have two examples on this slide. Um, uh, a conditionally active biologic binds actively to antigens expressed on cancer cells um, and not on normal cells, um, but there's preferential targeting and uptake. We have two here, Axel and ROR1, that are uh, both made by BioAtla and both being uh, uh, evaluated in a refractory second-line lung cancer patient population. You know, the reason I, I am uh, interested in both of these molecules and, um, it, you know, they, it is a little bit more challenging. Challenging. I'm, I, I, oncologists, including uh, Melissa Johnson, like easy. And so you can just apply the trope to ADC and you, you don't have to screen. For both of these, they seem to work better for patients that express Axel and express ROR2 or ROR2. Uh, or ROR2. Um, uh, the uh, uh, hypothesis is that 60% of non-small cell lung cancer will express Axel or ROR2, so the bioatla program screens, <coughs> screens for both. Um, but it does appeal to me because, of course, in this first line, we're treating all patients the same. We're treating all patients with chemo-IO. Um, and we know that patients with lung cancer are heterogeneous in their responses to chemo and their responses to immune therapy. So I like the idea of screening for something that differentiates a subset of patients. And uh, that's the, that's the uh, appeal of these two ADCs. Absolutely. I think that um, these data are exciting. If we can leverage sort of uh, molecularly how to target things that aren't necessarily expressed just on the tumor, it opens the door to a lot more ADCs. We are just on the cusp. We've only talked about non-small cell. We have molecules in small cell like uh, ifinitumab. Melissa, help me out. <laughs> Uh, I have been calling it IDXD. It used to be known as DS7300, and that was a lot easier to say. It's getting late. It's getting late. It's getting late. Now, this is a great drug. I'm super excited about this drug, so I'm glad that we've included it uh, to sort of uh, wrap it all up. This is a drug that uh, it's a, uh, targets B7H3, which is a checkpoint. Um, it is uh, expressed similar to PD-1 uh, on many uh, immune cells, and it's uh, it seems to be, however, it seems to uh, be a hook. Uh, we don't know what the ligand is. We don't know what happens when the B7H3 binds to its ligand and whether that uh, uh, results in uh, changes to the immune cell. Um, but it does seem to identify cancer cells that then can be treated with IDXD. IDXD is expressed uh, ubiquitously, not just in small cell lung cancer. It's expressed in prostate cancer. It's expressed in many squamous cancers, including squamous lung. So there are a lot of opportunities where we, you might see IDXD being um, uh, developed in the future. There is data in small cell uh, lung cancer. This is uh, uh, early preliminary data presented by Professor Doi at ESMO in 2022, but you see across the board at a number of dose levels, we're seeing uh, disease sh shrinkage. Um, in my patients, this was a disease shrinkage 
after chemoimmuno and after DLL3 bispecific antibodies, um, and as well as topotecan and lubernectidin. So this does, again, seem to uh, uh, result in shrinkage that um, is irrespective of prior therapies. Um, so, th and uh, lastly, this is uh, once again an exotecan payload. Feels, this drug feels very different. Nausea is a, a side effect, but doesn't seem as severe as, uh, as it is in some of the others. So um, stay tuned uh, for a presentation um, at a meeting later on this year um, for more mature data. Um, we went through a lot of questions today, did a lot, covered a lot of ADCs, yeah. okay. and I think that you'll agree, it's just the tip of the iceberg. There are a lot more in development that are coming soon, so in the future we'll have to sparse this out into multiple talks here. Thanks everybody for being here. Have a good night. My name is Nikki Martin, and I am Longevity Foundation Senior Director of Precision Medicine Initiatives. Thank you so much for joining the CME program at ASCO on antibody drug conjugates. I'm going to share a little bit about Longevity's resources for your patients to better acquaint you with our organization and how Longevity can support your patients uh, better. So Longevity Foundation is a nonprofit patient advocacy organization. Um, and we really are operating with two major focuses. The first is to help patients uh, have better outcomes with this disease. And the second is to improve the experience that patients have living um, while they're living with lung cancer. And so we're doing this through three different ways. Uh, one is research. Um, the next is different policy programs. And the third is uh, really providing patients with support and resources. Um, in addition, a major focus for longevity is our focus on precision medicine. Um, we believe that precision medicine is a foundation to all aspects of the patient's care. And so we have a number of programs to help patients have access to biomarker-driven care. Um, and today, when I review some of the resources and services that we have for our patients, uh, I've really tried to highlight those programs that are have a little focus on precision medicine so you can feel confident connecting your patients um, with those services that we've provided. So first of all, survivorship and support services. Uh, this is really one of longevity's kind of uh, core areas of focus, making sure patients have uh, more support to have more positive lives with lung cancer. Um, one of our um, flagship areas has been a helpline for lung cancer patients. Um, it's available to patients and caregivers to call in to get free um, free tips, free access to resources. Um, and the social workers, the trained social workers that answer the helpline are uh, very familiar with other resources outside of longevity, put patients into contact with those services. And um, we also have a number of peer-to-peer -peer support programs for patients and caregivers so that they can connect to other people who have already been in their shoes this is this can really provide um, a, a source of hope and 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 just uh, knowing somebody else is is there for them to talk to. And then finally, clinical trial finders is another very popular program that we have um, for patients to learn more about what clinical trial options are available to them. Um, patient education and online resources is another 
big part of what longevity focuses on to support patients. Our website has a lung cancer 101 section. Um, and when it comes to precision medicine, there's a lot of information in here for patients to learn about non-small cell lung cancer, biomarker testing, um, and the different biomarkers that might be identified through a comprehensive panel. Um, a number of videos that are also available for patients to learn about the same type of content. And finally, uh, Facebook Live programs uh, where we have uh, patients, um, caregivers, different experts from the field, all uh, available to, to chat live with patients on specific topics. Um, and then they're recorded and available later for people who want um, to view it at a later time. And just this month, uh, in the month of May, uh, we had two sessions that were precision, precision medicine oriented. One was on EGFR and treatment progression for patients, you know, options that they can consider after their first line of progression if they have the EGFR mutation. And the second one was on comprehensive biomarker testing and how to understand what to do with that information um, once you get your results and how it can inform your treatment decision. So uh, No One Missed is a major uh, program for us as well. This is a, um, a public awareness campaign uh, that we started uh, to try and reach people from medically underserved communities who may not be learning about biomarker testing. Um, we want everyone to know that they have a right to receive this type of testing at diagnosis and uh, give them tips for how they can talk to their providers or seek out a provider to ensure that they have this, this critical uh, diagnostic piece um, happen up front. And the lung cancer patient gateways. Uh, Longevity's uh, patient gateways are a one-stop shop for patients to get connected to experts and find a lung cancer community that has um, their specific type of lung cancer. So um, there's a number of gateways for different specific biomarkers. There's one for uh, KRAS, one for ALP, one for EGFR, one for rare mutations and fusions, and then uh, NSCLC gateway and a small cell lung cancer gateway. We want people to feel supported and to feel like they're part of a community. And so these gateways serve as tailored portals uh, to, to get to that end. And uh, the last piece are our print, print materials. Um, of course, all of these are available online, um, but we've, we've made a, a big effort to create uh, comprehensive and um, also health literate materials for patients on a variety of topics related to precision medicine, um, biomarker testing, targeted therapies, uh, liquid biopsy, um, how to pay for biomarker testing, um, and so the comprehensive booklets have been translated into health literate pieces and um, for more um, health literate, health, uh, limited health literacy um, patients. And so we're trying to reach everyone with a similar high quality of information to support their uh, lung cancer journey. And finally, for providers, uh, we really encourage you to see if, um, if there are any pieces of the print materials that you're interested in and would like to provide to your patients. And we'd be more than happy to send you um, a copy. Uh, five, I think we go from five to 25 copies in one um, shipment. Um, you can put your orders in on this website here, noted on this slide. And uh, 
you know, we'll be happy to send you um, these pieces as often as you need them. Um, and so it's uh, with great pleasure again that, uh, you know, we, we thank you for attending today's CME program and uh, very thankful to you for your support that you provide to patients um, as providers in this community. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Longevity Foundation. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YEN860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, BioAtla Incorporated, Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated, Gilead Sciences Incorporated, and Sanofi.